back in my, shoot, early 20s, maybe I was 20. I think I was, in tw- I was 20 maybe, 19, 20 uh, in college uh, when I got saved. Um, and in my zeal, as, as college students are prone to do, um, I became a part of a, uh, a two-year uh, discipleship program. Um, and for those of you who have been in the church for a long time, you know that's what people who want to be super spiritual do to make themselves feel more spiritual than everybody else. And so one night a week for three hours after school and then after practice, if you played soccer in college, I would go to this class where we would sit for three hours and, and go through a, a, a series of, of, of classes and, and materials. And, and one of the things that this program taught us and, and encouraged in us um, was the ability to engage random people in conversation with the hope of being able to turn that conversation uh, into a gospel conversation uh, or into an evangelistic conversation. And as good as that is and as great as that is and as wonderful as that skill is, they they taught us to do that um, by using this little program, this little track. For those of you, I'm talking to all the Christian people in here this morning. Uh, All the little tracks you grew up with, the little paper foldeds that got all these really silly pictures on them and questions on them and they gave us this little track called the two question test and they sent us out all over the city uh, to accost random people and, and as and as great as it is to engage people with the intention to try to find a way to to steer that conversation back towards something of gospel intentionality in nature uh, this particular track this particular system required that we go and engage a random person wherever we were and ask them that if they were to die right now, do they think that they would end up in heaven? It's not the best way to start a conversation with somebody you don't know. I mean, could you imagine somebody coming up to you in a public space, looking at you now in 2011 and going, you know, if you were to die right now, do you think you'd go to heaven? I mean, if you didn't get maced or hit or a police whistle blown on you, then the next question was, by what basis do you believe that answer to be true? You know, and the really honest people, when we came across the really honest people, would often say, you know, I I don't know. And that was one of the legitimate answers. I, I don't know, but the thing about this test, and as much probably bitterness as I still have, welled up in me towards this process and will probably need further counseling on. But the beauty of, of, of this test was that when done well and when done accurately and when the conversation carried an, an appropriate gospel message in grace-driven manner, what it was after was what, what, what in your heart, what in your soul causes you to believe that If you were to take your last breath right now, you would stand before a holy God and he would allow you to live in his presence for all of eternity. And conversely, if you didn't think that was you, why? The good thing about this test was that it was after something that was residing deep into your heart that whether you knew it or not provided you with a sense of assurance and confidence and hope. And when not resident in your heart was the source of so much of the frustration, confusion, anxiety and restlessness that's so common 
when the lights go down at night and we close our eyes and we're left with no one but our own soul. I got bitterness about this day that never went well. But it taught me and taught the rest of us who were in there a number of of great lessons. And I'm not going to pull a two-question test out on you this morning. Uh, I'm not going to do that to you, but keep that Keep that in the back of your mind this morning. Keep that question, keep those two questions in the back of your mind as we look back into the book of Acts. And if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them, if you haven't already gotten there, to Acts. For those of you that are new with us this morning, we are glad you're here. My name is Robert, I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. And we like, week in and week out, to open up the Bible. And to go verse by verse through the different books of the Bible with the intention that God would use his word to transform our souls to reflect the character of his son. And for the last couple of months, we've been walking through the book of Acts. It's in the New Testament. It was written by a man named Luke, who was actually a physician, not a pastor. And it was his record of of what the risen Lord Jesus Christ was continuing to do even then and even now while he resides at the right hand of God through his people here on earth, the, the church. And we've been walking through the book of Acts, and we've gotten to chapter 9. And last week, we looked at the conversion story of a man named Saul, Saul of Tarsus. Um, That particular story, and you'll see where I'm going to go in just a second this morning. That particular story of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus caps off off a, a segment of the book of Acts that has become one of the most treasured segments of this book to me as we've been reading this and as I've been studying it and studying forward for future messages. You see, if we were to go back just a little bit, if you were just to turn left in your Bibles a little bit, back to Acts chapter 6, the book of Acts kind of works in these chunks, and the current chunk that we're in in Acts chapter 9 actually starts back in Acts chapter 6. And if you remember, those of you that were here, in Acts chapter 6, we, we meet a man named Stephen, who was a member of the church in Jerusalem, a man who Luke records was full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and God was using him in extraordinary ways to, to speak the message of grace and of good news of the man Jesus Christ, and God was using Stephen in extraordinary ways to see the lame healed and the deaf hear, and, and people were learning about this man Jesus and the hope that God had given his people through his son Jesus, and it began to anger the religious people in Jerusalem and the religious leaders in Jerusalem, and so they got Stephen and they They gathered him to the council, and they trumped up false charges on him, and they tried him in front of the council for for teaching blasphemy, for claiming that this man Jesus was undoing all that they had put their hope in, that this man Jesus was undoing the law of Moses, and this man Jesus was undoing the the relevance of the temple for worship. And if you read in Acts 6 and Acts 7, Stephen's defense before the council is he does the very thing that they were fearful of and proclaims in an unbelievably beautiful way how this man Jesus fulfills all the things that they had put their hope in, that what they were hoping in was a shadow of the real thing. Stephen preached a a gospel message of how Jesus Christ was the one thing that could bring the hope and the confidence, the assurance and the joy that they were so desperately longing for in these other things. And for that message and for that faithfulness and for that hope, in Acts chapter 7, you see that that message enraged enraged the religious leaders and they rushed him. And they stoned him to death. And in that stoning and in that murder, that martyrdom of Stephen, we get a sequence of three 
absolutely beautiful and unexpected stories of transformation of which this man Saul is kind of like the capstone. In chapter 8, we, we see how after Stephen was martyred, a persecution began, and they began not only on the leaders of the church, but now it was a persecution against the entire church in Jerusalem, led by this man Saul of Tarsus. And the church in Jerusalem had to flee to all the neighboring towns, and along the way, as the church fleed, so did a man named Philip, who, like Stephen, was one who was chosen by the church to lead the church in meeting the needs of God's people, and he was chosen because, like Stephen, he was a man full of the Holy Spirit, and wisdom and Luke records how as Philip left Jerusalem in the midst of this persecution he made his way down to Samaria and if you remember our message on this and you remember the Samaritans the Samaritans were the most hated people by by the Jewish people the Samaritans were seen in the eyes of the Jewish people as half-breeds as mixed breeds and it wasn't just an ethnic thing it was a religious thing as well and there was generation after generation of animosity and hostility that had been built up between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people And what Luke records for us is that Philip wasn't told to go to Samaria. Philip wasn't pressed towards Samaria because all the streets going elsewhere were busy. But Philip set his eyes towards Samaria and he left Jerusalem and went to Samaria and he began to gossip, Luke said. He began to proclaim, but in in a way that was just telling of the good news of the hope that he could not contain any longer of this man Jesus to the Samaritans. And Luke records how a revival broke out in Samaria. The most unexpected and the most unlikely. Those who had had so much hostility, so much animosity, so much anger, so much tension. A revival broke out and the city in Samaria began to get saved. So much so they had to bring two of the apostles down to check it out to verify it. One of which was John, who we talked about earlier on when he was with Jesus. When Jesus was ministering in Samaria and the people weren't responding, he just said, you know what, let me just call down fire and kill them all now. Holy Spirit brought John down to confirm what was going on in Samaria. This unlikely, unexpected transformation, this unlikely and unexpected turn of events in the lives of these people. And just when it seemed like it wasn't going to get much better and Philip was going to carry on a great ministry in Samaria and plant a church in Samaria and, and see churches come up all throughout Samaria, the Holy Spirit says, Philip, now go. I got something else for you to go do. And we see in Acts chapter 8, in the second half of Acts chapter 8, Philip taking off down a desert road in obedience to what God had told him, and the Holy Spirit had compelled him, and he heads off down this desert road, not knowing quite what is in store for him. But God had a man waiting for Philip. And as Philip made his way down this desert road, he saw a a chariot on this road. And we read as Luke records, because you got to love the way that God inspires the writers of the Bible to record particular details. The Holy Spirit compelled the Spirit of God and Philip to go and catch up to that chariot. And Luke said he did. So you got to imagine Philip running down this road, running up next to this chariot, catching up to a chariot down on this desert road. And as he catches up to this chariot on a desert road, he hears this Ethiopian man in this chariot reading from the scroll of Isaiah, reading from one of the Old Testament prophets, reading a passage that was one of the best softball passages in the Old Testament you could ever toss a preacher, you could ever toss a believer for the man Jesus Christ and for what God would do through his son who would come and who would lay down his life as a servant for all. And Philip came up to this man and said, do you know what you're reading? And he said, how can I if no one tells me? And from that passage, Luke said, Philip began to tell him about the man Jesus Christ. And a man who had journeyed this Ethiopian eunuch to Jerusalem to worship God, 
A man who had been compelled by the work of God in his heart all the way back in Ethiopia, compelled to take himself all the way on the long trip to Jerusalem to go to the temple where he could worship this God who was compelling his soul. And when he got there, he found out because of his station in life, because of the disgrace of his body, because of the fact that he was a eunuch, there wasn't a sacrifice in the law that can make him clean enough to go in and worship God. And here was this man who approached God with a heart to know this God who was met by the law and met by a people who said there's nothing that can be done to make you clean enough to worship this God. And the shame and the guilt and the disgrace all got back in that chariot on their way back to Ethiopia. But God had a man for that and he sent Philip. And Philip began to show him the man Jesus Christ, the one who made a final sacrifice for all. And this news so lit up this Ethiopian soul that Luke records that in that moment he saw some water, some probably dirty water out there in Gaza. And he said, what keeps me from being baptized? And we get this record of this unbelievably beautiful and unexpected transformation. Right on the heels of that, we get right back in Acts chapter 9 to this man Saul, Saul of Tarsus. A third story in this framework, in this little section of Acts. This man Saul, who we had just heard about a chapter earlier, who was the instigator of this persecution against the church that caused Philip and the rest of the believers to scatter, was now making his way up to Damascus, seeking to find any of those guys who had fleed up to Damascus and nipped this thing in the bud before they could get into the synagogues in Damascus and begin to see some of the other Jewish people converted to this message, to this gospel, to this people that was called the way. And as he made his way to Damascus, we read last week that a light from heaven overwhelmed him, knocked him from his donkey, blinded him in the middle of the midday sun, and he was confronted by the risen Jesus himself. And we read through the first part of Acts and how Saul, who was on his way to Damascus in such strength and such passion, entered Damascus, being held by the hands, blind, unable to see for himself, unable to make his way in. And in his blindness, he was confronted not just with the risen Jesus, who he was so bent on seeing the message of exterminated, but he was confronted with himself. And we saw the rest of the story, how God spoke to another man, in Damascus named Ananias and he had told Ananias that he was to go to this man Saul that God had prepared him and that Ananias was to go to him lay his hands on him and he would regain his sight and God would use him to preach this good news this gospel message this grace to the ends of the earth and that's this great little story this this three salvation section this this section of acts that has captivated my heart, it's captivated my mind, it's been central in my prayers as I've thought about the church, it's been central in my mind as I've thought about our, our city, and here's what I think has captivated me so much by this section of scripture, this collection of the most unexpected and unanticipated but beautiful of all transformations. It's, I love this because so many of you, as, as I thought about Redemption Hill and I thought about those that God would bring in here on a Sunday morning, there's so many of you who would come in here for the first time, maybe the first time you've ever been to a church, maybe it's the first time you've come back in a long time, 
because you've had some long-standing hostility or a long-standing animosity in your soul between you and God or between you and the church. Maybe you have been in a church a long time ago and you've experienced some things that, that separated you from the people that were there. Maybe you had entered that church with a desire to, to know the one in, in whom they sang about, the one in whom they talked about, and when you got there, you found that something about you that came in with you separated you from the rest of these people and you weren't welcomed and some kind of animosity rose up in you or some kind of guilt rose up in you or some kind of shame rose up in you. But for whatever reason it was, you felt alienated. You felt separated. As I've read these stories and prayed through this text and, and thought about this church and, and, and thought about you, I've fallen in love again with this section of scripture because here's, here's what I know and, and here's what I want you to know as we go forward. No matter what you think you've done, I mean, no matter what you're carrying around with you, no matter what's producing that frustration, that animosity, that, that shame, that, that guilt, no matter what it is, you lay that thing down on a table next to the Samaritans, next to the eunuch, next to Saul, and they've got you all beat, hands down. They've got you all beat, hands down. This man, Saul of Tarsus, we looked at last week. We'll look at more as we continue to go through the book of Acts. Just confessed to be complicit in the persecution, binding, and murder of men and women. No matter what you think you've done, no matter what you continue to carry around inside of you, you lay it down next to him. He's got you beat hands down. Yet, last week we looked at how he said that God saved him, the foremost of all sinners, the chief of all sinners. Why? So that in his transformation, so that in his conversion, so that in what God did to this man Saul of Tarsus on that road in Damascus, those who would down the road, those who would walk into this room right now in 2011, who would believe on the man Jesus Christ, would know the perfect patience and mercy and long-suffering of God. Here's why I've loved this panel of stories and why I can't seem to get away from this panel of stories. Because as we read them and as we hear them and as we see them in the, in the whole of the story, they present a picture and they make a statement that says, everyone who walks in here has no reason to look at God and say, not me. Not me. I'm beyond that kind of grace. I'm beyond that kind of transformation. I'm beyond that kind of rescue. These stories present a picture and present a case that says no one, no one who walks into this place is beyond the grace of God. There is no rebellion. There is no sin that God's grace can't defeat. You can't be so lost, so set apart, so hostile, so defiled that God's grace can't find you. You can't be so blind, so hard-hearted, so angry that God's grace can't make you see his beauty in the face of his son. That's what these stories are saying. 
there's something else that I really love about this last story of conversion with Saul of, of Tarsus. When we read of Saul of Tarsus and we hear him say that he confessed to being the, the chief of sinners, we look at his record with the church and we go, sure you did. You went into homes and you yanked women out of their homes in front of their kids. You bound them up in chains. You took their dad out of their home and bound them up in chains and took them off to Jerusalem where they'd be persecuted by the council and most likely murdered and you left their kids sitting in the house. Of course you're the chief of sinners. It struck me as I continued to read this and, and pray about this and sit on this story of Saul. If I were to ask him why he thought he was the chief of sinners, I don't think his behavior towards the church is what would top the list. But that's how we tend to read his story. When we hear of his sin, when we hear of his alienation and separation from God, we load into it what he did to the church. But when push comes to shove, and one day I may be corrected when I get to meet him, if we were to ask him, really, Saul, it's the, the chief of, of sinners. Why do you feel that way? I don't think it's that persecution that he would take us to. There's, there, there's two things about his conversion that I that I love. There's, there's two things about what happens in this story that I've, I've grown to love in an absolutely new way. The first thing is that this conversion, this transformation of, of Saul of Tarsus is a, is a conversion story or a transformation story that calls out the most deceptive of all people. See, it's one thing to read the story of the Samaritans. Long-standing hostility, animosity towards God's people built their own temple to rival the temple of the people in Jerusalem, desecrated the temple in Jerusalem so that God's people couldn't go worship. I mean, there's something about reading their story and, and thinking, they, if anybody needs God's grace, it's the Samaritans. And then there's something about reading the Ethiopian eunuch and going, well, yeah. I mean, according to the law, uh, there's nothing that we can do to get you in there. I mean, according to the law, you're defiled and there's nothing we can do no way we can help you to to become clean so that you can worship this god yeah this this guy needs the grace of god but when we read the story of saul of tarsus and we take it out of the context of his persecution of the church and we look at it in the context of who he was as a man saul of tarsus the pharisee we see that his conversion is one that gets after the most deceptive of all people, the most deceptive of all sinners, the, the morally good. Those who on the surface don't so clearly seem to need the radical grace of God poured out to them. You see, but Saul's story and Saul's conversion declares that all of us need something beyond our best efforts at being good people. All of us need something beyond our best efforts at being happy religious people if in that day when we breathe our last, we're going to stand before a holy God and, and give an answer to why we should be spending eternity in his presence. I love that this story of Saul gets after something that so easily gets overlooked. The other thing I love about it is that it highlights what that silly two-question test tried to get after every time we talked about it. Saul's conversion unpacks, it unfolds, it puts out right into our view to see first and foremost that what God is after 
It's not your behavior. It's not your record. It's not your good deeds. It's not your religious achievements. It's, it's your heart. And one of my biggest concerns for myself, one of my biggest concerns for us as a church, one of my biggest concerns for God's people in this city and in this day is that we've grown comfortable allowing a generation after generation of people to feel like God loved Jesus, mom loved Jesus, and dad loved Jesus, and dad built a building at the church, and they named it after him. I, I must be okay. Generation after generation of people, in particular in this city, the longer that I'm here, that connect their hope of assurance, their hope of comfort, their hope of eternity to what their mom, their dad, their grandparents did in relation to God. A whole generation of people who, who feel like, you know, I, I do the best that I can to get up on a daily basis and remember that God's real and, you know, that, that I should just try hard and that day 25 years ago in summer camp when I saw the video about the end times and people's heads were getting cut off with guillotines and militaries were taking over all the world and the pastor came out and said, if you want to spend eternity with Jesus, just bow your head and raise your hand. And I just prayed. And from that day forward, I just wake up and happy to be alive and going about my business. A generation after generation of people coming into this place right now whose sense of assurance and comfort before God is staked solely on their best efforts to be good, nice, moral, and religious people. And it simply scares me to death. You see, here's the thing. Saul of Tarsus, he was a Pharisee. By his own admission, the Pharisee of Pharisees, he outpaced every single one of your best efforts to be a good religious person. He outpaced every single thing that you have done in an effort to present yourself and to continue to be in your own mind and in the presence of other people a good, nice person. And this is what makes his conversion all the more astounding to me. Because on the surface, in comparison to the Samaritans and in comparison to the eunuch, when you look at Saul the man, Saul the Pharisee, he's the last one that we would assume needs this unexpected, unanticipated, and overwhelming grace of God poured out on his life. Because in comparison to everybody else, he seemed to be doing all right. And so this morning, with the time that we've got left, I, I actually want to help us better understand this transformation of Saul of Tarsus. This transformation of Saul, the Pharisee of Pharisees. Not Saul the murderer. Not Saul the persecutor of the way. Not Saul the persecutor of the church. But Saul the Pharisee. I want us to look at the conversion of a good man a rule keeper. Because if we're really honest, that would, <laughs> that label would work well on a lot of people in here. Good people. Rule keepers. To help us do that, I want you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. The 
Gospel of Luke. You're going to go left. The same man who wrote Acts wrote the Gospel of Luke. And if Acts is the story of what Jesus Christ, risen and ascended at the right hand of God, continues to do to fulfill his purpose of redemption throughout all of creation, through his people, the church, empowered by his Holy Spirit, then the Gospel of Luke is, all, is about all that Jesus did and taught when he was with us here on the earth. And in Luke chapter 18, we get a parable. We get a story that Jesus told. It's a story that's been stuck in my mind since I heard another pastor preach about it probably two years ago. And as I was praying and working through this section of Acts, it just continued to be electric in my, in my heart in relation to our lives and our understanding of what it means for God to transform a good person. Luke chapter 18, we're going to start in verse 9. This is how it goes. He, talking about Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now, you can go ahead and put yourself in this verse. So, he also told this parable to you, insert your name, who trust in yourself that you're righteous and treat other people with contempt. I love how direct Jesus is to these people. I want you, when you read your Bibles, just to listen. To, Jesus doesn't mince words with people. He doesn't talk about these people. He doesn't talk around these people. He doesn't talk to these people about these people. He looks them dead in the eye. And this is what he says. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So for the sake of this story, if it would help you, you can go ahead and insert Saul into this story. So Saul went up to the temple to pray. Uh, a Pharisee. This would have been very normal of him or, or normal for any Pharisee. A Pharisee was a religious elite in the time of God's people in, in Israel in this time. A Pharisee was a keeper of the law. And in fact, is in their training to become Pharisees, these teachers and keepers of the law, they had memorized the first five books of the Old Testament, the, the Torah. These were the guys who kept strict adherence to all the, the rules of the law in the Old Testament. And in fact, in over a 200 and 500 year period in the life of Israel, they had added another 200 and I think 57 rules to those rules. These were men who were zealous for God's glory. They were zealous for the people of God, the church. They were zealous for God's fame. They were very religious people, very moral people, very upright people in a, in a good sense. In fact, just so we can connect it to your, your work, Saul, who will later become Paul, will say this about what it meant for him to be a Pharisee in Philippians chapter 3. For those of you who are doing the partnering to remember, we're, as a church, we're memorizing the book of Philippians between the beginning of the year and Easter. You'll, you'll get here in just a second. But here's what Paul would say about himself. Though I may in myself have reason for confidence, if anyone else he thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. In his own estimation of his keeping of God's law, he would say in his conscience before God at this time, he was blameless. That's what a Pharisee was. So Saul Pharisee, a religious guy, a good man, a keeper of God's rules, an obeyer of the rules. He makes his way to the temple to pray. And the other was a tax collector. 
Now, tax collectors were dirty, wicked people in Israel. Tax collectors were Israelites who took a job with the Romans, the Romans who were occupying Israel, the Romans who were treating Israel with such disdain and displeasure, the Romans who were killing their men and abusing their women, the Romans who were enslaving the Israelites and their people harshly. These men would take jobs with the Roman government, and they would extort taxes from their own people to give to Rome and then to keep whatever overtax they taxed their people in for themselves. These were wicked people. These were nasty people. These were people that were not respected in any way, shape, form, or fashion by their fellow Israelites. But a good man, a rule keeper, a standard bearer, and a tax collector. He's missing a parrot and a priest for a good joke. They make their way to the temple, and they're going to pray. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, began to pray. And here's what I want you to see as he begins to pray. His prayer really isn't all that bad. And this is what got me a year and a half ago. This is what got me. His prayer really isn't all that bad. You see, we, we, we've been around this so much. For those of you who have grown up in the church and You've heard the stories, and you've come in and out, and you went through Sunday school, and then you went to church. You're, you're predisposed to hear Pharisee bad, Pharisee black hat, Jesus white hat. So when we read the, the prayer of the Pharisee and the story of the Pharisee, we're automatically going to look at it for what did he do wrong? What did he say wrong? And here's what finally got me about a year and a half ago when I heard somebody teach on this. There's nothing wrong with his prayer. Listen to what he has to say. Standing by himself, the Pharisee prayed thus, God, I thank you. Look at that. Where, where does the glory, where does the thankfulness, where, where is it all directed? It's towards God. So already the credit is being directed towards God in this man's prayer. I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now this is where we go, uh arrogant jerk that's how I always read it I think that's how I was always taught to read it too and right there the story turns for me when I read this verse and I read it this way but this man was doing something that was very natural and absolutely okay this man was thanking God that God had intervened in his life and amongst the sin in his own heart God had directed his steps and he wasn't a murderer he wasn't an extortioner. By God's work in his own life, he wasn't even like this tax collector. All of you have been there, and it's okay to do what this man just did. A month doesn't go by where I, my heart isn't broken by my own awareness and my own sin, my own proclivity, and the darkest parts of my heart's the, the heart to sin. And a month doesn't go by when I don't get a story from another pastor or a man in my position somewhere else in this country who has done what seems almost unthinkable to me. But he's committed a sin not only against his wife and his family and his church, but against God. And he's had to be removed from his position. And I guarantee you, the minute I pray for his soul and for his people, I thank God that he has kept me from that. You, you do this. It's okay. He wasn't looking down on this man with contempt. Read the context of his prayer. He was thanking God for who God 
has made him, for how God has directed him. The holy God. Verse 12. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all of I get, all I get. So he's thankful for what God's done in his life and how God has directed him and protected him. He's a Pharisee and he's zealous for the holiness of, of God and the purity of his people. And he goes from there straight into his religion. You know, by law, he was supposed to fast once a week, but he said, you know what, I fast twice a week. There's a zealousness for holiness here. There's a zealousness for purity here. I mean, he didn't go to the things that we would typically go to. Hey, God, I went to church this week. I made it to community twice this month. I got the Bible off the shelf. Praise God, next month I'll read it. Thank you. This man went straight for fasting and tithing. Two wildly unpopular concepts. Two wildly unpopular concepts. In the three-year history of this church, I have never preached a series on fasting, to my own shame. Jesus, when asked why his disciples don't fast, he says, well, why would they fast as long as I'm here? But when I go, when I go, then they'll fast. Then they'll look at what is before them here on earth. And they'll remind themselves that something greater and more satisfying is to come. Then they'll keep themselves from food or drink for a period of time, reminding themselves in soul, living that out in practice, that there's a greater satisfaction to come. This man goes straight for it. I don't fast once, I fast twice, and I tithe on everything I get. He didn't just follow the law. And giving what he was supposed to give according to the law, he said, I do this on everything I get. I sell a house, I tithe on what I get. I get a tax return, I tithe on what comes in. I buy the food I need from the people who turn it into the temple as offering and sacrifices. I buy that, I tithe on what I buy to eat for myself, I give that back. Tithe on everything. This is a man who was zealous for obedience to the law. Zealous for holiness before God. Mindful mindful that his station in life is owed to the work of God in his life. There's essentially nothing wrong with what this guy's prayed. In fact, if we're really honest, in most churches, you meet a man like this, you're trying to tap him for something. Lead a community. Come up here and pray. You want to preach next month? We got something new we're trying to start. We need to go plant a church out here in the West. That's who this guy is. There's nothing essentially wrong with what he just did. And you need to see that. Verse 13, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I mean, this is a wicked, wicked man. There's got to be something he can be thankful to God for, for, not him, for him not becoming. Maybe he hasn't killed anybody. I mean, at least he can say, thank you, God, I'm not a murderer. There's got to be something, but there's nothing. There's, there's no confession of holiness. There's no confession of zeal. There's no confession of passion, for, of thankfulness towards God. There's nothing that was represented in the Pharisee's prayer, the prayer of a good and upright man that's represented in the prayer of this wicked man. Instead, what you get are the words of a man who's, in a very real sense, drowning in his own tears. A man who's come face to face with his own Darkness in his own sin, a man who in 
common language is absolutely broken. Broken at the merest glance of who he really is. He's gone through the process of looking at his life and trying to cast blame on other people, trying to cast blame on other circumstances. And he's found himself face to face with himself. And his own tears, he beats his own chest and he cries out, God, be merciful to me. A sinner. That's all he can say. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Now, if there was a period there, it'd be really good, wouldn't it? I mean, if there was a period there, this would be a story that would be told often. If there was a period there in your Bibles, there would be a bold heading right under this verse starting the next section of Scripture. But there's not a period there. There's a comma. Because something else is about to be said. Rather, this man went down to the house justified rather than the other. The tax collector can be saved. The wicked man can be saved. The Samaritan can be saved. The eunuch can be saved. Here's what's hard. The Pharisee, the good man, the rule keeper, he didn't leave the house of God justified. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So here's the thing. Go back to the beginning. We'll give these two guys, and I'm going to redeem it. This might be part of my counseling and part of my therapy. We're going to redeem the two-question test. This Pharisee and this tax collector leave this temple, both left the house of God, and you're standing out on the steps. You're looking for guys walking by you. You've let a few go by because you're nervous, trying to build up your courage. How are you going to approach them and not, not think you're going to rob them and hurt them? And you grab him and you get this Pharisee and he's right there, a religious guy. This is going to be easy. Let's get my confidence going. If you were to die right now, if God were to take your last breath from you right now, do you think you would end up in his eternal presence forever? Yes. Great. Why do you think that's the case? Here's where it begins to go bad for the Pharisee. Here's where it begins to go bad. The prayer, not so bad. Nothing really went bad for him there. Here's where it goes bad. The Pharisee actually thought that his maturity in the faith, his spiritual growth, his maturity before God due to the life that he has lived and the rules that he has followed actually justified him before God. It wasn't bad that he thanked God for the things he thanked him for. It wasn't bad that he thanked God for his action in his life. It wasn't bad that he acknowledged before God the ways that he has sought God's holiness and, and to vindicate his own life before God. What was bad is that he thought those things made him right before God. His own maturity had begun to replace God's work in his life and his understanding for assurance and confidence before God. If that doesn't happen to the majority of people who taste the grace of God and in a period of time begin to grow and achieve some level of maturity and spiritual development in their life, if there's not a greater temptation to Christians in the church today than to get to the place where you believe that your maturity and your holiness and, and your standard that you have grown into now justifies you before God, I don't know that there's a greater temptation. There was nothing wrong with this man's desire for holiness. We'll spend time in the New Testament. There's nothing but God's indicative commands for holiness, his imperative commands for holiness. Holiness is a good thing. 
But this man began to think that his maturity is what justified him before God. His acts of growth and maturation are what made him right before God. And Jesus just said no. I didn't say no. Jesus just said no. But you got this tax collector. You're going to grab him on the street. He's coming out. This, oh, now you feel confident? Pharisee said yes. You're good. Tax collector coming out. Now you're going to try your chops out on him. You know he's a wicked man. You got him. Ask him. If you were to stand before God today, do you think he'd let you live in his presence for all of eternity? This man, you caught him at a different time. This man would say, I'm not even worthy to be brought into God's presence. I'm not even going to go there. This man would have to be dragged kicking and screaming by the angels into the presence of God to look before God and his holiness. And when he did, and God looked at him and said, why do you think I should let you spend all of eternity with me in my presence? He would simply say, because of the work of your son, Jesus. I mean, you got a sitting duck right here. You ask this guy right now where he is, what God's done in his life, he would simply say, I plead the blood of Jesus. I'm not worthy to be brought into your presence for all of eternity. And myself, I can't stand before you for all of eternity. But in, in your son, in his life and in his death, and in his resurrection, I find my life. And I plead the blood of Jesus. You shouldn't let me in. My only hope, my only hope, is your mercy through your son. That's what this guy would say. And Jesus just said, God's going to look at him and say, justified. Justified. Right now with God. This, what happened to this tax collector, what happened to this man, is the very thing that happened to Saul of Tarsus on that road in Damascus. The very next verse in Acts chapter 9, and we'll, we'll look at it in more detail next week, says, immediately upon regaining his sight, Saul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made such havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength. He confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus was the Christ. This is what Saul began to proclaim. And that's the foundation of everything that we have to hope in and believe in. And as I prayed about this morning, I thought about a number of you and realized that a number of you are here this morning and you have built your sense of assurance and confidence and satisfaction before God on your own self-righteousness. You've built it on your own process of exalting yourself and looking at your own growth and begun to believe the lie that that then justifies you before God. Some of you have begun to buy into that deception and I don't think there's anything wrong with being thankful for where God has brought you. 
In fact, I think it's wholly right to regularly give credit to God for where he has brought you from and where he has brought you to. But I think a number of you have begun to believe that that process, that maturation, in a really twisted way is now what justifies you before God. And Jesus just said no. He just said no. Happier those who know that maturity in Christ simply means a life which springs from God's grace. And that grace simply means a call to follow Jesus. Happier are they who have become Christians in this sense of the word. For them, the word of grace has proved a font of mercy. The guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Grace alone in Christ alone is the only foundation for our acceptance before God alone. It is the only right motivation to compel us towards holiness and maturation. For so many of us, we have a, de a desire to, to know our new identity in Christ, as Chris was talking about, and to pursue holiness in the way that Saul, this Pharisee, this good man, so exemplified and then in that, understand the grace of God. And here's what Jesus just said. The only thing that gives you that new identity and produces that type of holiness in your life is the grace of God. This is what you've got to understand and this is what you've got to know. Grace compels holiness. Holiness and spiritual maturity does not earn grace. And God's grace is the basis for the only confidence that we have. The only hope that we have. Some of you have come in, as I prayed and thought about you this morning, you've come in more, more like the tax collector. And here's the thing, the good news is, regardless of what you've done, regardless of the wickedness in you, the defilement in you, the animosity in you, the fear in you, it's simply one act of faith on this man, Jesus Christ, and his grace that pays for all of that once and for all. It's just faith in the one man, Jesus Christ, who came and lived the life on earth that you were created to live and then laid his life down willingly on the cross and died to pay the price for the life that you lived and said. And Paul would say later to the church in Corinth that on that cross, God made his son Jesus, <laughs> he made him that Samaritan. He made you that one with such animosity and hostility towards God. And his son Jesus on that cross, God made him your inner Pharisee. He made him your inner desire to prove your own righteousness before God. And on that cross, Jesus willingly died in your place and absorbed and exhausted the wrath of God in your place for your sins. And three days later, God raised him up from the dead, vindicating his sacrifice in your place so that anyone in this room who comes in here as a good, right, moral person, trusting in their good deeds, good behavior, and good pedigree to stand before God, and those who sense the weight and the defilement of their own sin, all together can come in here in one act of faith on this man Jesus and what he has done and God's grace poured out through him wipes it all away. That's why I love, love, love this section of Acts. We have a Savior who is great in grace. 
Yet as we argue constantly for our own righteousness, we act again and again and again as our own saviors. But I love this section because it says that none of us, not even the good ones, are too far for his grace. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your your unstoppable grace that moves in unexpected, unanticipated, and uncalculated ways. Thank you for the stories of transformation, redemption, conversion that you've recorded for us in your scriptures. Lord, this morning would help us to examine our hearts in the time that we have to examine our our hope and our source of confidence before you. Help us to examine what what we believe is the foundation for our sense of forgiveness before you. And if it's anything other than your son Jesus and his life and death in our place, Lord, I ask, Lord, by your Holy Spirit that you would compel us in an act of faith and trust to turn from that very thing and turn to your son Jesus. That you would be glorified and the transformation of a soul will take place. Amen. As is a custom for those of you who are new here, we we like to take a couple of minutes to respond to God's word after we hear it read or hear it taught. Uh, If you have some questions in your bulletins, they're just guides for you to think. This is a time for for you to pray and for you to deal with God and to allow him to deal with you. And, you know, I'd simply say, you know, take the time right now in reflection to ask yourself in your own heart, if you believe that you're deserving of God's forgiveness, on what basis? Allow him to deal with you and you deal with him and then we'll come back together and take communion. life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. All of us, every 
one of us are assured that there is no sin so terrible that God can't forgive it. There is no sin so terrible that God cannot forgive and no hurt so terrible that God that God can't heal. No guilt or shame so deep that God can't wash it away. In Jesus, the Christ, God accepts, God forgives, and, and miraculously, God sets free. This is what we actually celebrate as we take communion together this morning. Some people are going to get up and they're going to go and they're going to grab some bread and they're going to grab these chalices and they're going to come and they're going to stand in front of these sections of chairs. And in just a minute, I'm going to tell you to stand. And, and for those who have placed their faith on this man, Jesus, you're going to come forward and we're all going to come forward together and you're going to take a piece of bread that represents Jesus' body broken on your behalf because there's no sin so, so terrible that God couldn't redeem, but it it took the sacrifice of his son to make it happen. And they're going to hold the bread and they're going to say the body of Christ is broken for you and you're going to take a piece of that bread and you need to take a big piece of that bread. And the person next to him is going to say the blood of Christ spilled on your behalf because there is no shame and no guilt. That's too great or too deep that the blood of Christ can't wash away. And you're going to take that bread and you're going to dip it in that juice, remembering the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on your behalf that brings forgiveness, that brings redemption, that brings freedom. And we're going to do that together, and then the band is going to lead us in songs of celebration and songs of joy. So now when you're ready, for those who have placed their hope, have placed their faith on this man Jesus, go ahead and up and stand. For those who are still struggling, those who still have questions, praise God you're here. We want to help you answer those questions. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. You can come after the service to the meet and greet and ask your questions. But now let's all stand. And when you're ready, you can come forward and take communion.